to the CLL Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 30. Today, we have two amazing guests. These are two people I've known for many years, and I'm excited to sit down with them and discuss some of the initiatives that they're working on at their firms. Michael Paley is the Chief Operating Officer at Klingman & Associates in New York City. I've known Michael uh, back when we both worked at Focus Financial together, and he just celebrated his seven-year anniversary at Klingman. So congratulations on that milestone, and welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you as always. Great. And joining Michael is Kevin Herdlicka, the COO of Savant Wealth Management in Rockford, Illinois. Kevin just celebrated his 13th year with Savant. And uh, I worked with Kevin on one of the very first, it might've been the very first project that we did as PFI advisors over five years ago. So I've known Kevin for quite a while. Welcome to the uh, COO Roundtable, Kevin. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Great. Well, Kevin, I'm going to start with you. Most, if not all of our listeners have definitely heard of Savant, but why don't you give us a little bit of the background of the firm? Sure. Yes. Savant actually started in the mid 80s as a financial planning only firm. And what ended up happening was you do these financial plans for people and people kept coming back saying, can you implement it for me? And so after a number of years, it became its current iteration in 1993, where it was, you know, investment management, a pure registered investment advisor. And so flash forward to today, and we're just under 11 billion in assets under management. Uh, we got 18 offices and typical client size. I mean, really can serve a lot in the, the early days. It was a, a smaller average client. So we kind of say we can take on clients ranging from a few hundred thousand in assets, you know, to above 10 million, but really our, our sweet spot is in that one to five million. Million. And historically, it was all organic growth. And what you mentioned earlier, you kind of helped us build some of our inorganic growth plans. So we've done a little bit on the inorganic side, but traditionally, it's been all organic growth. And we hope to continue that going forward. Our, uh, our long-term vision is to grow 10x in, in 10 years. So really be a $100 billion firm here by the end of the, the decade. So that's a little bit about Savant. It's just amazing our industry. I mean, I haven't been in the RIA space for too, too long, but uh, you know, the 100 billion, come on, that's absolute insanity. <laughs> but it's really not anymore. Uh, RAs are doing it and, and a lot of RAs are on that path. So that's fantastic. So Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about Klingman and Associates? Sure, happy to do so. And Kevin, good to chat with you and hear more about what Savant's doing. So Klingman Associates in different forms and incarnations has been around since Jerry Klingman graduated college. Jerry's our founder 38 years ago. We were formally founded as an RA, I guess, in 2006. Today, we, according to our latest ADV, advise on 2.7 billion in client assets for about 375 core families and you know, closing in on the $3 billion mark. Couldn't help but noticing that Kevin has 18 offices. We are about to add our 18 person. So I guess we have as many employees as Savant has offices. And then similarly, Kevin, you know, your client, your sweet spot's the one to five. You know, our sweet spot client is really the five to 50 million investable assets. We do work with a number of centimillionaires, but our sweet spot's been the five to 50 in investable assets. And in that category, there are several niches, I guess you would say, where we have a pretty high not concentration, but a large number of clients, including corporate and financial executives, business owners, attorneys, and professional athletes. And I'd say the the unifying characteristics of our clients is that they are all 
busy or have been busy at some point in their lives and have amassed a significant amount of wealth to really warrant the comprehensive approach that we take to wealth management. In terms of how we've gotten from Jerry founding his practice in 1983 to almost 3 billion today, our growth has come really exclusively organically. Not surprisingly, given the industry, the, the vast, vast majority of what we've done has been through referrals, largely clients and through our own personal networks. We, we look towards the future. I suspect, again, the vast, vast majority of our growth will continue to come through referral networks. But, you know, we've been fortunate to be on a number of the industry's lists and are seeing an increase in the number of incoming inquiries. And we're going to continue to think about how can we be more proactive in driving that organic growth? How can we engage with our clients? and our personal networks, whether it's through content, through events, through other initiatives such as that. Despite my background, and Matt, you and I worked at it for quite a while together at Focus, we have not pursued the inorganic growth, the acquisition fueled growth. You know, certainly it's something I've got the background and we could do. We've just had enough opportunity organically to grow the business. It's certainly something we will, we, we might pursue in the future. I don't think it'll be the driving force of our strategy for some time. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. So yeah, we talked about your time at Focus. You're one of the early employees there. And I know even before Focus, you did some cool things. So walk us through your career path and how you wound up as the COO at Klingman. Career path. To look at my my career, it follows a nice linear path. And I, I guess I wish I could tell you that it's been some sort of master plan, but really I figured it out as I went along and things just naturally built on each other. I'll skip through the early days where I was a strategy consultant right out of college and then worked at internal consulting effectively for Pepsi. But after getting an MBA, I had the opportunity to join a private equity firm just outside New York City. And that was really my first introduction into the quote unquote deal world and really got a lot of my foundational knowledge. Had a great experience there. Learned a lot about not just the mechanics of inorganic growth and acquisitions, but a lot of the soft stuff behind it. You know, what's going on in the minds of an entrepreneur? How do you navigate the process? And so then was fortunate, you know, in, as you mentioned, in the very early days of Focus to, to get recruited, I was the then fourth employee of the firm to really co-head business development. Was there almost eight years, had a, had a really wonderful experience together with you for, for a good bit of it driving a large part of the growth of the business. And, and through that, when I first spoke to Rudy and the team at Focus, I honestly had never heard of the RIA industry and then obviously quickly learned about it. And, and through the work there, just became amazed at just this under the radar screen industry and what RIAs got to do for their clients and, and how the industry was growing and stealing market share and I think played a, a big role in Focus's success. And so while I was successful there, I guess you could say I ended up at Klingman because I was unsuccessful at, in my role at Focus, at least as it relates to Jerry and team at Klingman. You know, candidly, I tried to bring them into the Focus partnership for seven years and you know, Jerry and I would have the same conversation every six months and say, hey, Jerry, you built a great business, but it's it's not built to last for 20, 30 years beyond you. You need our help. Come join Focus. And he'd say, that's great. I certainly could use your help, but I don't want to sell. And then after having that conversation, probably 10, 12 times over a seven-year period, he said, no, really, I've decided, come to the conclusion, I, I do want to build this business you know, beyond really what we have and make it sustainable. I want your help. I'm not going to sell. Why don't you come help me run the business? And that's how I found my way to Klingman. That's perfect. It's funny you talk about the career path and how it wasn't a by design. This is why this is always my favorite question on the podcast is hearing everybody's stories. I, a couple of weeks ago, I did a mock interview for uh, a UCLA master's program. And this this woman that I was interviewing, she was, as you would expect in an interview, she was kissing my butt a little, <laughs> a little bit. And she was talking about, you know, wow, your career has been so great. And well, you're such a genius for thinking through all of this stuff. And I, I had to tell her as, as an undergrad at UCLA, the whole reason 
reason I got into this industry in the first place, there was a sandwich shop that I liked in Westwood that I would go to probably three times a week. And they always had CNBC on. This was in the 90s. And the, t- the ticker interested me. I said, I have no idea what all those numbers mean. It was still fractions. The tickers were still all in. And I don't know what any of that means. An eighth, a 16th going roll, scrolling by. I think I'll get into that industry. <laughs> that was the, gr- the grand plan. She fell out of her chair. I said, that's out. And you know, you fast forward 20 something years later, here I am. I love the career paths that everybody has. So Kevin, you have not job hopped. You joined Savant right out of school and have held a number of positions on your way up to, so you've, you've position hopped <laughs> uh, up the ladder to the COO position, but tell us about your career progression to where you are today. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of funny that you mentioned Matt, you know, the CNBC. So I was, as a kid, when I I've always was interested in the stock market and growing up, we did in one of my math classes, a, a stock market challenge. And it was actually in, you know, 1998 when you had all the volatility there and, you know, made a ton of fake money and like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so that was, you know, new, wanted to be somehow in investment related industry. And then in college, as you're starting to learn more, what's a broker, what's a fiduciary, it was pretty clear to me wanted to do something in the fiduciary side. And so I was looking for an internship, found Savant was pretty close to where I uh, grew up. And, you know, fortunate enough, I actually started as an intern on my 21st birthday. So pretty exciting 21st there. Um, And the, the company's always had a strong internship program. We actually have four of the five people that I interned with are still with the firm today. And, you know, back then we were you know, just approaching a billion dollars. So it's a pretty strong uh, kind of hire people who have been there as interns or prior experience and promote from within. And so I started out in an operations role, bringing in the, the downloads into our portfolio management system and worked to get my CFA, CFP, and um, just slowly took on more. So I uh, moved over to the investment research side, and I had the opportunity to be a, a first-time manager, which is such a, a great transition. You learn so much, you know, stepping in there. And, and then they just kept throwing more at me. So manage more and more departments over time. And I know the, the COO role can, can cover a lot of different things. But, um, you know, at Savant, the way that we view it is it's, it's obviously investment operations and trading and research. But we also include uh, compliance as part of that. And then inorganic growth, due diligence, integration, and onboarding. And then in recent years, we've done a big push on our business intelligence initiatives and then uh, incorporated strategic planning. So it's really firm-wide operations. Our CEO, Brent Brodesky, he's often said, you know, you got to constantly hire and fire yourself over the roles as your career evolves, as the company evolves. And I think that's that's true of all of us. So we just need to to keep learning and evolving. And, and that's what, what I've tried to do here in my career. That's great. Michael told the story of, of talking to Jerry Klingman and him saying, I need you to come here and help me run the firm. Our listeners have heard me say many times over two plus years of this podcast that the COO really acts as an internal business consultant. They sit at the right hand of the CEO and they really focus on freeing up the advisors to go do what they do best, which is focusing their time and energy on client service and business development and not getting caught up in the day-to-day minutia of running a business. And we started this podcast because I kept hearing from RIA owners who believe that the COO was merely the quote tech guy or the quote tech girl. But as we've discussed so often here, the role encompasses so much more than that. And many RIA owners 
will say, I can't afford a COO because they aren't a revenue producing role at my firm. But I think you both are perfect to combat that type of thinking. So Kevin, I'm going to go to you first. How in your role as COO, how do you think you're supporting Savant's growth? Yeah, I I think one of the big changes as you grow is this idea of specialization. So when you're a small firm, you're doing everything, right? You, you have to, you have no choice. And as you grow, you put yourself and each employee in to do what they do best every day. And so to me, operations always has directly supported growth, first off, based on specialization. And you know, the example that I always like to give is just investments. This industry grew up managing money. So a lot of the, the founders and, and the next gen, they were investment managers first and foremost. And it's still mind boggling when you go to industry conferences and talk to people, how many successful financial advisors are still heavily involved in day-to-day trading decisions. You know, the last thing that I would want is someone who, who's really good at bringing in business or, or managing client relationships, talking to, you know, figuring out how to allocate a $25,000 deposit. So really by specialization, we push the work to the appropriate people, which, you know, naturally creates efficiencies and allows our advisors to have you know, time with their clients and find new ones. I mentioned one of our big pushes the last couple of years is on and data and business intelligence. And so right there, we work directly with advisory leadership to really help measure and track activities that drive success. So whether that's ensuring we know where clients are coming from, whether that's in a certain location or, you know, what's working, what's not, how are we getting business or it could be revamping a process. So for example, we really want our advisors tracking their sales progress. So having a robust pipeline, making sure they're updating it. So we'll take a look at the operations team. How can we make that as easy as possible so it takes as little time so we have access to the data? You know, one of the powerful pieces of of data, we've looked at the history of Savant. And if an advisor meets with a client at least once a year, does a planning case so that we can document it in the CRM, and we do their, their taxes, annual client retention is... 99.8%, which, I mean, that's the sort of thing that's hard to argue with. And it gets away from that anecdotal. I mean, who's going to argue? Yeah, we need to do planning for all our clients. The more um, hooks we have on a client, the more sticky they are, right? The other one that's a little bit different is on inorganic growth. You mentioned that you think of operations or the the stereotype is operations are a cost center, but in the M&A world, it's really the advisory team is supporting the operations team. So What Savant does for inorganic growth is we actually do a full integration. So we're not just bringing on, I mean, we take everybody, we act as one single operating company. So it's really all of the the operations teams and IT that brings everybody together. And um, historically, that's actually supported the overall organic growth because we've had the firms that we bring on grow a lot faster than the rest of the firm. And I think it's, again, because of that cycle of the other firm, they're not wearing as many hats. They now have additional capabilities that they can use and they have a succession plan in place. So those are just a a few examples that come to mind for me. I love the what's working and what's not working and, and how you're tracking that and able to articulate it to the firm so that everybody can focus on the, on the right areas. That's great. Michael, in your day-to-day responsibilities as COO, how are you driving growth at Klingman and Associates? Let me start by sort of addressing the point that you asked the, the prelude to your questions, yeah. Kevin and I, which is the trend in the industry or the, the founding principle or principles will say, I can't afford this role. Certainly that's something you and I saw a lot of in our days at Focus when we were traveling the country talking to 
to potential partners. And, and I think it's still out there quite a bit and it characterizes a lot of the historical thinking. And then as firms started hiring CEO, I still think you know the, the initial trend was to hire someone more administrative than someone who could really drive the business. So, and while that seems to be changing, I think there's, there's more room that is an industry we can do. You know, so Absolutely. in that regard, whether it's a CEO or otherwise, you know, one of the key pieces of advice that Jerry and I will give people who reach out to us for advice about growing their business or their practice is to try to think five years ahead of the perceived need. Remember we did a couple of press interviews when Jerry hired me. And one of the things he articulated was, you know, the role when he hired me was too small for me then, but it was going to be the right role for me five years from now. And sort of he, you know, I was very fortunate that he had that mindset of hiring ahead of what you actually need, because if you're doing the right things and you're growth oriented, you'll grow into that role. And I think that's, that's a real opportunity for us as an industry. You know, in terms of my responsibilities, you know, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head that it's, a, you know, the CEO role is, is a great point of leverage. And there's really two dimensions, I think, that a, a good CEO can be a, a, a point of leverage. And that's first is on the day-to-day managing the firm. And then the second is managing and driving for the future. You know, a, lot, a good bit about what Kevin talked about. You know, in terms of the the day to day, candidly, before I was there, I would say Jerry, as the founder and sort of the chief bottleneck, you know, he'd go on vacation and never really worried about clients being served. You know, because our team was so oriented around client service and the client experience. But but he's often said, you know, when if he'd be away on vacation, he'd be, still be working, but the business wouldn't move forward. You know, now today, you know, with me in that role on a day-to-day basis, you know, I'm responsible for basically all the non-investing and direct client engagement stuff. So thinking about, you know, in many ways, what is the client experience? I, I view myself as the keeper of the client experience, but whether it's the human capital, technology, operations, compliance, all of that stuff that is involved in, in making sure the trains run on the track, that the tracks are being realigned for the future is under my purview. And that's really how I support the growth of the business, if you will, on a day-to-day basis. Beyond that, you know, I actually am, I personally am deeply involved in driving the growth or helping to drive the growth of our business and involved in much of our business development activity. You know, I've been fortunate to bring in a number of clients from my personal network. For most of our new prospective clients on the first point of contacts, having sort of a screening interview to determine what the right fit within our advisor set is. And then for many of our larger clients, I'm, I'm engaged in our discovery and proposal meetings. So it's, you know, it's, it's for me, it's been a great running and managing the business, helping see the future and helping drive towards the future. I love the keeper of the client experience. I'm, I'm imagining like a Superman <laughs> ripping the <laughs> ripping the suit open and it's keeper of the COO keeper of the, of the client experience I love that it's that's it's good. As Kevin will tell you, you know, I'm certainly we're not supermen, you know, it, the, the real keepers of the client experience are our teams. Yep. So we're just making sure they have the right tools, guidance and structure to to do the things they do which is is really deliver the client experience track it. Yep, exactly. No, I love it. So you led into the the next question perfectly. Talk about the team. So let's talk about employees and employee development. I'll go to Michael first. What are you doing to drive employee productivity and and, and growth? Two very different parts of that question. There's the, what's the, how do you improve the productivity of the team? And then how do you develop the team? Mm -hmm. So maybe let me start with the productivity side, you know, so from, from that perspective, I think there are two key components. You know, one is, and I'm sure Kevin's done a tremendous amount in this regard is quote unquote institutionalizing the client experience. You know, I never liked the word institutional, especially in a small boutique firm like ourselves, but that's really what we what a good firm can and should do. You know, and what that means to me is is having a client experience so that it can be delivered consistently over time to all your clients, regardless of how big you are and regardless of who's delivering it. 
So you could have someone who's been at the firm 25 years in a client relationship associate role delivering that, or you can have someone who's been in the client relationship associate for 25 days delivering that. You could do it for a client that's been, around, been a client for 20 years or for a client that's been 20 months. And those are the kind of things that as you grow and as you have more clients and you're adding more team becomes hard. And it's really important to institutionalize it, to really build that client experience into your technology, your workflows, your operations. I think the second thing we've done from a productivity perspective is, is dramatically improve how we leverage technology. Technology is, is a great thing, not because it's cool and sexy, but because ultimately it frees up our team time to focus on the things that, that really impact clients. You know, and here, you know, when I think about leveraging technology, there's obviously been a lot written over the last decade or so about the impact of robo-advisors and other technology-based solutions. I remember, I think Joe Duran was the first person I heard articulate it. His view on the future of industry is very much, you know, resonant with what Jerry and I believe, which is the best advisory firms are going to be so-called bionic advisors. It's a premise on which we're building firms, our firm, which is how do we use technology not to replace people, but to support people so that people can do the things that really matter and impact our clients. So how are we doing these? I think we're doing the things that you'd expect a successful growing RA to do. We've made a significant investment in technology. We're building out in our mind what the key business workflows are. You know, I think we may be a little bit different. In my focus days, I remember one firm had 542 workflows built into its CRM. <laughs> We're certainly not that extreme. You know, we've really tried to focus on what are the 10 or 15 core workflows that make up the vast majority of what they do, and then really give our, our team, empower our team around that to deliver things beyond that. And then the last part from sort of a productivity perspective is training and retraining the team. And that really segues into, you know, I would say that the team development component, this could be not only another podcast, but probably a whole series of podcasts. It's so essential to our business. And as we think about it, a couple of years ago, we actually revisited our mission or our why. Our mission is we have a passion to help our clients, their families and our associates achieve their life's goals and genes. And it was a couple of years ago that we at, made sure to add our associates explicitly to our why. And it's a very key part of what we do when we recruit people. You know, we're telling them our objective is to help them be the best versions of themselves. And so, you know, I look at my role and, and Jerry's role in that is really to create an environment where motivated people can flourish. You know, what have we done? What do we do to help them grow and develop? You know, I think the first is you have to have a pretty solid human capital model. So when I joined, we built out our human capital model. So we created a job scorecard. We don't call it a job description. We call it a job scorecard for every role. We have twice a year, I sit down with every member of the team and have a coaching discussion. Again, coaching against the job scorecard. Scorecard says... What does success look like for your role? I sit down and say formally twice a year, you know, how are you doing against those objectives? And then we, we very directly tie compensation towards the scorecard, which is aligned with the, uh, towards the coaching, which is aligned towards the scorecard. And that human capital model has created tremendous transparency, not just on compensation, but on what people are doing well and need to develop to be successful in their roles. We're fortunate in our size is we then can have also very informal coaching discussions. So I have a very open door policy, or I guess open Zoom or Microsoft Teams model over the last 15 months. My team is constantly constantly calling me, asking me for advice and asking all of our team members. There are other things we do as a firm, firm-wide. We have financial planning committee meets once a month to share best practices, case studies that they've worked on. So we can make sure as we continue to grow that if Sammy's working on something, he's sharing that with Michelle and we can apply those practices both to new and existing clients. We obviously have formalized investment committees, you know, typically two or three times a month. And we're very diligent about meeting together as a team, sharing key learnings, key observations, cool things we've done for clients recently, 
to make sure that everybody knows Cynthia did this, Gloria, maybe you should think about that in another client situation. And then the last thing I do is I have formalized, you know, in addition to the twice a year with a number of our team members I'm meeting on a weekly or biweekly basis to have very specific coaching sessions, whether it be on technology, operations, investments, or on business development. In the employee productivity part of your answer, I loved everything you said. You could have written the article for us. We, not too long ago, we wrote an article, RIAs that excel at technology do not look like technology firms. And I've been waving this flag very strongly lately. I feel that a lot of RIAs are misguided. They say, we want to be the Amazon of wealth, man. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't want to deliver. I think too many RIAs are putting technology between the advisor and the client. I think that you want to use technology. Everything you said was perfect. You want to use technology in the background to deliver a human experience. And you mentioned, you know, Joe Duran talked about this years ago. I loved everything you said there. That was great. I mean, two of our last three new clients came with, from Betterment, you know, and, and, and yeah. largely because they've outgrown them and they need more sophistication. So that that human overlay, that human delivered yeah. advice, the human delivered psychology or psychologist, which is so core to what any of our firms do is critical. I love it. So Kevin, we all say that we're only as strong as our employees. So what are you working on at Savant to make employees as successful as possible? Yeah, well, yeah, first off, Michael, that was a great answer on the productivity. I don't, yeah, I scratch my notes on some of that stuff here. (laughs) Uh, But really, I I think it's in some ways, it's really instead of being a top down, especially as you add people, it's it's natural to want to be there. You really need to encourage the bottoms up communication and ideas. And so, so like Michael mentioned, we have a lot of internal committees are kind of ad hoc. There's no no stick, you must do this, but we're gonna have a group get together on, we call our kind of mix of technology process and people, the ideal futures platform. So we have a cross-functional group of staff that get together and you know, similar to Michael, share best practices, what's working and really get that throughout the firm. And so one of the pieces of feedback we've gotten over the years was stop doing the annual performance review. That was one that I think we all have, have hated over time where this once a year you get your feedback. And so we, a couple of years ago, went to just quarterly performance check-ins. And that's really helped us as a firm because you get that real-time feedback. It's quick, timely, and it's more meaningful because it's really more of what you're working on here and now. And the other piece that that naturally lends itself to is where do I want to go in the next three months, 12 months, three years? And so We've actually had a lot of staff just transition across the firm, whether that's becoming an advisor or going into client service or going into investments. And so I think just having that constant feedback loop has really has really helped the employees be successful. And growing allows you to do that, right? So if you aren't growing, there's not going to be opportunities to put people in new spots as they've mastered certain skills and are ready for new challenges. And so we always try to take that growth culture and then constantly talk to our staff. Another initiative that we did a couple of years ago was we adopted the the OKR framework. So that's objectives and key results. What I really like about that is it helps when you've got, you know, 18 offices, you got people doing all sorts of different things, really focused on singular objectives. So what do you want to do? And then actually measurable key results. You know, we have always, at least in, in school, you're taught to do smart, uh, you know, smart goals and, and which are great. However, you know, the, the key results are you may actually not, you may change your tactics with your smart goals to get to the objective that you want. So it makes you a little bit more nimble. And then when you've got people doing a lot of activities, we found that it really helps 
get everyone, you know, rowing in the same direction. So th those were a couple things. And Michael, you said you, you touched on a lot of what I had as well, but, but similar approaches, right? You need to have a financial planning committee. You need to have an investment committee. We have an encouragement and recognition team, which has been particularly important, I think, in the, in the COVID world where we're still finding ways to get people together, even if it's more remote than in the past. So just ways for people to bring their best ideas forward and then, you know, celebrate and encourage them. That's great. I, I had a conversation this, this morning with somebody talking about career paths. And I think the RA industry is doing a great job of evolving and, and offering career paths within their firms. But I think we, as an industry, we have a long way to go there. So I love you're really thinking through and, and making sure people have growth opportunities. You said people are moving with it. I mean, you are a perfect example, right? How you've moved up at the firm. Um, so that's fantastic. So let's talk organizational structure. I mentioned it earlier. One of the primary roles of the COO is to free up advisors and get the administrative tasks off of their plate so that they can best serve their clients. Michael, what have you done at your firm to support the advisors and allow them to be as productive as possible? We've talked about employee productivity. Now let's talk about advisor productivity. Yeah, and I think we've touched on a good bit of it. So I don't want to restate a lot. You know, I think there are a few things from an organizational perspective. One is you're really taking, I don't want to call the administrator, but the day-to-day -day management responsibilities off of advisor's plate. Mm -hmm. And I play a key role in that for sure. But I think it's also important to highlight what we've done from an organizational perspective is empower our client service and operations team to play a key role in that. You know, so we look at our client, client relationship associates and our operations team, not as our first line of defense, but our first line of offense. We don't have a receptionist. When the phones ring, one of our client relationship associates answers the phone and are armed to as best as possible to address the client's questions. So they have, so they build really deep, meaningful relationships with our clients and our clients then know, you know, they can call Cynthia or Gloria or Portia or Jordan for this, and they don't need to call the advisor. You know, in fact, it's, I think it's pretty fascinating. The most feedback we got when we sent out our semi-annual client letter was the letter we talked about, you know, two of our long-term client relationship associates celebrating their 20 year anniversary with us. Our client feedback was extraordinary because they've built such meaningful relationships. So I think that's a key part. And then obviously, you know, looking at, you know, before I was here, Jerry managed technology and compliant and all of this, and he doesn't have to do that anymore. The second thing is, and this goes back to something Kevin and I talked about earlier, is how do you leverage technology? I think, Matt, certainly when you and I were traveling the country talking to firms in the focus days, advisors would have spent a lot of time thinking about things they need to think about in the future. Whereas where we've really leveraged technology in recent years and set up our technology in a very prudent way, so that it's reminding our advisors when they need to do things. So we have a series of dashboards that tells our investment team you know, when they need to rebalance. They tell advisors advisors when, you know, when we haven't met with the client in the four months or six months, depending on, on what their meeting frequency should be. And so all these things that are reminding people so they don't have to go look at a list to think about what they need to think about to then go do it. And I think we underestimate the impact of that entropy, if you will, on brains and productivity. And then the third thing, which is probably the most impactful really from an advisor is through that technology and through, you know, changes to our organization, we've centralized most of our trading. You know, so as Kevin mentioned, you know, this is what he called the specialization. You know, I would say seven years ago, our advisors were spending 30% of their time on, on actually determining what trades to make and making the trades. Now, if it's 5% of their time, that's a lot, you know, so we're, so we're not all the way down the spectrum to where I think Kevin and the team at Savant is, but we've dramatically changed our team. So if you just think about that, if an advisor now has 25% to 30% of their time back, their capacity increases pretty dramatically. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And Kevin with Savant, we talked about 11 billion of assets, 18 offices. It must feel like steering an ocean liner sometimes. <laughs> From an organizational structure point of view, how have you built out the back office in a way that allows advisors to remain in that relationship manager role and, and not in that administrative role? So we've just more broadly speaking, we've really borrowed a lot from that, the Mayo Clinic model. And for people who maybe aren't familiar, if you think of traditional medicine, you go see your primary care doctor and they'll take a look and then they may refer you to a specialist who has their own view and, and so on. But really with the Mayo Clinic model, you've got all the experts are in the same room working together. So the way that we think about, you know, the RIA world is you got the advisor at the center and then the specialist and the various support departments help serve the client. So again, you know, the advisor is not the expert on the nuances of an investment portfolio. If there is some weird investment, you know, they can call our investment research and they will help them. They'll jump on a call or, or get in a meeting with the client if they need to. Or let's say you have a client that's looking to sell their business, right? It's, you know, even though we've got very smart people, tax laws and strategies are extremely complex. So in that case, we'll bring in someone from our wealth strategy team to help talk them through the best options for them. And so similar to Michael, where we have our, our client service team is really the, the unsung heroes of, of the firm and that, you know, they're the, the front line of defense for a lot of phone calls and they can handle a lot of it. So advisors don't have to be you know, bogged down in certain things. And then with our, our workflows and our technology and our CRM, the client service team drives a lot of that. And so it allows the advisor just as much time as possible, again, just to, you know, harp on it, to, to find new clients because it's really hard to, to develop new business and then maintain relationships because nothing's worse than one thing to get a client, but to, you want to keep them for a long time. And so uh, we feel that the more focused they are on those things and relationship management and have everybody else doing their part and doing it at a very high level that really gets the most out of them to be as productive as possible. And so with your size, there's a lot of challenges there. What kind of KPIs do you rely on to monitor the health of the organization? Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the big one the, the is what we would call net new assets, which we then have been working to convert to net new revenue. So if you think about what, what is net new assets, it's really inflows from new clients and inflows from existing clients. Then you've got consumption. So clients who are going to stay with you for a long time, but they're going to spend money. They're, you know, they're going to buy a house, go on vacation. And then you've got lost clients, which you know hurt, hurt the most. As I mentioned, it's, it's really hard to get a client. You want to keep them for a long time. So we break each of those out and look very closely at the drivers of those. So if you're just looking at inflows only, if you think of inflows from existing clients, you know, to an extent that that just happens, right? If you provide great service, they're going to continue to do business with you. So uh, we, we feel like that one is a little bit of a, it is what it is. We, we expect and high service and we've seen nothing to change that. So we, we generally get a lot of, of wallet share from existing clients. The other one though, as far as new clients, we look at initial consultations, so, so new meetings that we have. And you know we can see it in the data, right? In the, with COVID, our initial consultations plummeted as everything went remote. And uh, you know, it, it reflects the net new assets. And then conversely, as things have been opening up, you know, this year, our initial consultations per advisor are the highest they've ever been. So you really can see that's a very forward-looking looking indicator. Um, another one that we've, we've put a lot on is the net promoter score. 
So it's something that we actually will send out uh, after a client meeting. So net, net promoter score is a one to 10. How likely are you to recommend um, Savant or you know whatever it is, Costco or Amazon? And so it really reflects you know, the, are, are they raving fans? Are they okay or, or not so much? And so, again, as I, I mentioned earlier, if, if just meeting with clients, providing a great experience, I mean, our net promoter score um, is been, you know, it's in the 90 plus percentile, which is, I haven't found any, any large company anywhere close to that. And so we look at that across advisors, across offices, and, you know, if anything is slipping, you know, we're going to dig into that, you know, right away. Uh, one more that I think that we've we've pushed on as we've expanded our, our capabilities as a firm is what is our average new client size? Uh, historically, you know, in the, the early days, we had a lot of sub-million dollar clients. We've added a lot of capabilities over the years. And so as a result, we want to see, uh, you know, new clients, AUM and revenue pick up over time. And so that's one that we track closely because it's one thing, right, to add all the capabilities, but if you get the same clients you always got, you know, it may not be having the effect that you want. So, uh, you know, those are just a, a handful that we're constantly looking at and, and talking about as a, as a management team. Hey, Kevin, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned you send out the net promoter score after each meeting. Is that a, an individual survey that then sort of tallies up or how are you doing that? So we use uh, Get Feedback. So we, we are a Salesforce firm for CRM. And so after a client meeting, it, it gets automatically sent out. And then if they complete it, it gets sent back and tracked and logged in um, Get Feedback. And so then we take that into our business intelligence software. And because it's all in our, in our CRM, we can look at um, you know, the client, the, the AUM, the revenue they pay, um, what score they gave. And so we've actually been starting to use that as uh, a good referral opportunity. So if, if someone's giving you, you know, high marks on a net promoter score, for example, they're, they're probably pretty happy with you. So we're trying to use that to actually encourage more client referrals. I mean, that is the bulk of our business, but we think we can do more given that the clients, you know, are giving us such just high, high scores. So we feel that's an opportunity that we're actually just starting to implement this year. And that's super smart. I mean, everybody knows, oh, ask for referrals, ask for referrals, but to have the data to tell you exactly who to be asking the referrals from, <laughs> uh, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really what it's done is it, I think it gives some of the advisors the confidence. If they scored you a 10 out of 10, they're probably pretty happy. It's not a big ask to say, hey, you know, do you know anybody and, and kind of yep. go through that process. So I, th I think it's helped just increase confidence amongst the group to, to, to seek those out more. Yeah. So Michael, what, what sort of metrics do you keep an eye on to know if the firm is headed in the right direction? Well, listen to Kevin, maybe not enough. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, I think when we look at KPI, we try to remember that at the end of the day, it's, we, we have a fairly simple business. You know, the business is, a, is people serving people, right? So the first dimension is our clients, is the people we're serving. And Kevin touched on a couple of the key ones. I think the, you know, and it's really about, do we have enough of the right, the right kind of, the right clients and are we bringing in enough of the right clients? You know, so the first thing that Kevin mentioned is totally paramount. If you're not measuring retention, you're, you know, you're probably not being honest with yourself. And if, you know, we like Kevin are very, are very fortunate to have extremely high retention scores, but if retention rates, and if not, it's probably a sign of more fundamental issues with, with the client experience. And again, we're fortunate that, you know, so far so good. 
Um, then the second part, as Kevin said, and is are we adding enough cl enough clients? And again, it's are we adding enough of the right clients? And with that, where are they coming from? You know, so we all anecdotally say that's coming from referrals, but are you measuring that? Are you measuring what the sources are, what your conversion rates are based on the source? You know, and I think certainly as we continue to grow and evolve and try different marketing strategies, what we're seeing is we may get more meeting, we we, we may get more introductions with certain sources, but those yields may be a little bit different. And being aware of that so you can spend your time appropriately is going to be really important. Kevin, I, I love the idea of, of net new revenue. You know, we, we sort of look at it at the end of the year, but you know, there's no reason why we can't pretty easily look at as net new assets, which we look at on a monthly basis, um, look at the revenue associated. So I'm going to take that from you. And then the last thing, and the last thing, sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, one of the, the really interesting things is that it, we can get bigger clients, but if you're discounting your fees, it, 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 it can tell a different story. Yeah. So net new assets, it's easier to measure, but net new revenue is the, the right answer for, um, our, you know, if you're charging full fees or you're having to discount. So that's something that we've, we've really pushed to get away from culturally, because we've been in that net new assets for, for a number of years. Yeah, and, and not only whether you're discounting, just the fact that I think many of us are using tiered fee schedules that a $10 million client's effective billing rate is different than a $3 million client. Um, and then, you know, again, I encourage everyone, like Kevin said, to look at what sort of the net contributions from your existing clients are. You know, this was pretty eye-opening for us when we started looking at it a number of years ago in terms of, of the amount of assets that kind of flow out just in the normal course of our clients living their lives, whether it's you know, buying second homes or paying bills or paying taxes. Um, and so understanding that not just in a given year, but how it changes over time. You know, I think one of the things we're, we're very mindful of is, is trying to maintain a, the appropriate demographic as, you know, our older clients age and are we bringing enough new clients that are net contributors to their, to their accounts. Um, you know, so that's the first side, that's the client side. The second side, which is, you know, do we have enough of the right people in the right seats to serve our clients and support the growing business? You know, and here it's, you know, I think one of the challenges with KPIs is, is many people usually think of them just with a quantitative lens. But I think when you talk about your team, it's a pretty good, it's pretty important to think about it qualitatively as well, right? And, you know, for us with 18 people in a single office, it's going to be a little bit easier than Kevin, who's got, I don't know how many people, but in 18 offices, you know, so that we're looking at is the team engaged? How's the morale? What's the energy level? You know, particularly around, you know, sort of those calendar driven deadlines, you know, tax, even though we're not doing tax, tax work like uh, Savant does, you know, tax season's pretty busy because clients are doing their taxes and we work very closely with them and their accounts. Same thing with end of year. End of year planning and, and tax planning is a critical part of what we do. So how is our team doing in and around those? You know, quantitatively, you know, we're valuing things such as revenue per employee and per advisor, what the client load is at the advisor and employee level. I wouldn't say we're looking at it on a monthly basis. You know, we look at it periodically. We have a pretty good sense of it. Um, but those are really, you know, you want to be aware of that. So when you need to hire and tend to hire in advance of the need. I love it that I can hear the podcast listeners scribbling. You guys both gave some fantastic answers there. So thank you. That was, that was really good. Yeah, Matt, um, you, you know, yeah. Sorry, one thing I'd add is, you know, obviously economics is a big part of it, but, you know, neither Kevin nor I mentioned it as, as sort of a, a KPI per se, other than sort of the net new revenue. And it's really, you know, it's really a lagging indicator of, of how the business is doing. You know, and you can look at 2020 where 
you know, many of us were fortunate to have very good years as measured by client retention and, and, and new client flows. But because of the way the markets moved, you know, billing was down in Q2 and, and took some time to build back up. Yeah. And then also, you know, from an economic perspective, the reality is, again, I don't know what it is for Savant, but for us, and, and certainly the businesses we looked at when we we're at Focus, just people cost and rent are minimum 70%. For us, it's 80% plus of our total expenses. And so you're not going to change that too much on a, you know, within a year. So if your business is keeping clients, bringing in new clients and the markets are doing fine, economics are going to flow from that. Yeah. Super important. Yep. That's great. Uh, our last question, I'm going to hit on a topic that never seems to go away in the industry press, and that is fee compression. The stats that I seem to always come across peg the average AUM fee in the RA industry at 77 basis points. I always seem to see that number, 77. Um, and despite all the headlines around fee compression and robo-advisors and Amazon coming into the space and a whole slew of other doomsday devices that are going to blow the, the whole industry up, despite all of that, that 77 basis point number has remained relatively stable for over a decade. So that's the, the good thing. <laughs> the, the, the bad side of that, the untold story in the 77 is all of us have had to add more services to warrant our fees. Um, somebody said to me the other day, it's fee justification. So Kevin, I know Savant has always been looking at services outside of just the, the traditional asset allocation. Um, and in fact, there were recent headlines that you have partnered with a law firm to provide estate planning services. So tell us about the services that Savant has added over time. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, right. Like you said it well, like back in the day, if you did investment management, you could justify your fee and then it was yellow pad financial planning. And now, you know, having retirement or, uh, you know, software is table stakes. And I think we've all seen that service expansion to maintain the fee. And our goal is really to be kind of a one-stop shop for all aspects of a client's financial life. So, you know, beyond just the, the investment management, financial planning, one of the things clients had asked us to do was, can you help us with our taxes? And we obviously had the advisors looking at tax returns, but a number of years ago, we actually jumped into preparing taxes and filing taxes for uh, clients. And so, uh, you wouldn't think that'd be the most exciting thing, but clients love it and demand just skyrockets every single year. And I think it's just, it makes it easy for them. So that's been huge growth there. Uh, we actually have had estate planning attorneys for a number of years be able to go deep on wealth transfer and a little similar story there where it's like, that's great. I love this, but I still need to go somewhere else to draft the documents. And so, so yeah, we, we launched an affiliated law firm this year to actually draft the client estate documents. And it's the same thing. Like we were thinking it's going to be a slow launch and the pipeline was full instantly. So uh, it's just amazing, you know, because you're making it easy for people. Uh, a couple more maybe different areas that complement our core wealth management offering is we do have a big uh, retirement plan business. And we do own an accounting and payroll firm that does all of our, our income tax prep and then accounting and payroll. And, you know, we, we do feel that this is not going away and we'll continue to add services and new offerings over time as it makes sense. So I, I think, you know, there's no way around it, right? Otherwise, you, know, you mentioned Betterment earlier, right? They, they do it really low cost, but they can't do everything. And, and we think, with our people, we can do a lot more leveraging technology. So um, yeah, more to come for sure. Yep. And Michael, you and I have talked about this in, in the past. Clients are demanding more services from their RAs every single year. How, how have you guys addressed this? 
Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, certainly from our focus days where we helped our firms think through pricing, you know, the trend in the industry is fascinating because for many, many years, there was virtually no correlation between, you know, where a firm was, the services it offered, the clients it was working with, and, and what their fees looked like. And I think the reality is it's still pretty much the case. Um, you know, it's changing, as you mentioned, with the service expansion. In that regard, you know, to some degree, we're, we're fortunate to be a little bit ahead of the curve because forever and a day, we've, we've really focused on, um, you know, that comprehensive approach, you know, different than what Kevin said, it, what, what Savant's building is the one-stop shop. Historically, we've done it through what we call a virtual family office, where we coordinate really closely with, with the uh, clients, th you know, existing third parties or third parties that we introduce on the, you know, to draft estate documents, to do the tax return work to you know, do insurance and, and things like that. And that's always been, that historically has been our approach. So we have very broad, relatively deep experience, but or deep knowledge. We don't have the exact expert. We don't have the depth of expertise of an estate planning attorney nor of a tax preparer. Um, so as we think about that, I think we'll need to go deeper in certain of those areas, whether it's hiring an estate, you know, someone with a, a JD or hiring someone who has a CPA background. I think that's likely how we'll build that expertise with, with, um, within our team. You know, candidly, you know, Jerry and I sit down seemingly every year and, and think through whether we should you know, take a, a similar approach that Savant has. Should we get directly into the tax business? Should we have you know, a, attorneys on staff, not just to help architect, but to do drafting? Historically, the answer has been no. Um, you know, interestingly, we, we don't send out, you know, client surveys as frequently as Savant does, but we did a number of years, a couple of years ago. And one of the questions we asked was, was around this, you know, did, did our clients want us to do tax prep? And I think the answer was, eh. you know, some said, sure, I would do it if you had it. Some said, no, I'm not going to switch. So we took it to be for them. It wasn't a burning issue. Um, and I think, you know, certainly at the scale we're at, you know, again, Savant, a business like Savant's, you know, just has, has broader resources from a personnel perspective. You know, I, in my days at Focus, we had a number of firms, some excellent firms who did tax work in particular, and I've seen the challenges it can create on organizations. So certainly for, with a team of 18 people, it's not something we're, we're going to do tomorrow. Yep. Well, I, I said it at the beginning of the episode here. You both are two people that I admire greatly in this industry. And it was a it was a ton of fun and a big honor to have both of you on the podcast. So Michael and Kevin, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Always love spending time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Great. Well, that is a wrap on episode 30, everyone. We will talk to you soon.